Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hailing frequencies are open. What is it you hope to gain from novelty? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 403, Choose to Live, comes to you now via disturbingly not delicious mac and cheese. And just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode. Pete, does not the animated end of Star Trek return next month in January? Yes, confirmed here, Matt, that on January 6th, the next part of Star Trek Prodigy uh, will air. That's going to go until uh, February 3rd. That will conclude the first half of the 20-episode first season. And uh, outside of the world of streaming, on December 17th, Nickelodeon will be airing across the cable waves the, what we have been told is, feature-length one hour with commercials, so 44-minute Lost and Found pilot. Uh, So, you know, Pete, among... Among other things, we can certainly say they're hitting the streaming, they're hitting the cable partner, and uh, the the hope of Star Trek Prodigy growing the audience long-term, appealing to the young folk and such. I mean, it's firing on all engines. Got the, got the old hitting cable, got the new hitting streaming. It is as it was planned to be. So we'll get a little bit more of that overlap of two Star Trek shows actively airing alongside one another something we had not seen since 1999 and happened for one week until prodigy took that break but beginning early 2022 will happen again always looking with an eye towards the future with that pete let's head into the mission briefing the uss credence comes into view over a planet as it's delivering the lithium commander Fickett communicates with an unseen woman as two lieutenants prepare to beam the payload down and he lowers shields and the computer calls out a security breach when three robed figures beam in a hooded woman tells Fickett she needs to take his dilithium. He tells her she can wait and turn like everybody else. She says that's not possible and asks him to please step aside. Uh, He does not. There's an action set piece here. Pete, kudos to the ship design for the USS Credence. It looks cool and amazing. I personally have not been a fan of a lot of the ship designs from the Kurtz Trek era. Just personal preference, okay? My word is not is not uh, the law in the Federation and the Alpha Quadrant, the Beta Quadrant, and so forth. Uh, but I really like the look here. Okay, they're now in a corridor thing that is clearly a Discovery redress. No harm, no foul there. Uh, I do have some questions about the set dressing stuff, which I will save for later, Pete. So I hope you have your nitty-gritty thinking cap on. Uh, what I what I did appreciate was they're giving this teaser act the full treatment. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's the one shot where the commander, uh, Commander Fickett, is shot from below as he says something heroic like, no, we won't hand it over. 
this is a full-on, you know, how long is this scene? 45 seconds, 60 seconds. It's a full-on mini-sode here. Um, and after there's some pause for dialogue, you know, he will you choose to live? He does not. Uh, Pete, that's when he's kaput. Uh, no, then cut to credits. Turns out that you and I and Star Trek fans are not the only one watching this. Who else is watching this on Hologram? That would be Federation HQ, a meeting between Admiral Vance, Captain Burnham, soon see the presidents of the Federation, and Navarre also there. We learn that this is the fourth um, in a recent string of identical dilithium thefts, but the new wrinkle is taking the life of a Starfleet officer. The killer is ID'd as a citizen of Navarre and a Coat Malat nun known as Javini. Uh, she has mercenaries helping her out here and a tracker that they have placed in this most recent uh, stolen load of dilithium has given them the coordinates. Um, President Tarina of Navarre notes that these thefts started after the discovery of the gravitational anomaly. So that's driving what's happening here. Um, and Vance says they have no motive other than uh, having happened after that. Uh, Michael Burnham's mother, a Kuat Milat nun herself, joins the meeting. And President Rillick says that they will not respond to the thefts without Navarre's guidance because of the special relationship the two governments share. Uh, President Tarina noting that hopefully they will be reunited under the Federation flag soon. This is a surprisingly talky and dense scene for how it feels because it just feels like we have mm -hmm. some pertinent and important conversation. The fact that it's actually a ton of exposition. Pete, I almost was going to say an exposition dump, which I think most listeners would not necessarily view that phrase as a as a pejorative, but rather just, you know, a story function. But this does not feel like a dump of information, despite the fact we are checking a ton of boxes, including, you know, President Tarina, who I know was on screen uh, two episodes ago. I don't remember whether she had dialogue, and if it was some, it wasn't a ton. So we're kind of renewing our relationship, our viewer relationship with her. We have President Rillick, who I think everyone is clear, you know, is, is the president, but dusting that off. The whole situation, the reintroduction of mom, the reintroduction of the Kuat Malat, it's it's an, an astonishing amount here. And we're not even done with the scene as, let's see, Dr. Burnham, who Pete, may I call mom for the episode to make life a little easier between Burnham and Dr. Dr. Sister Burnham. I Dr. mean, she's got Dr. a lot Dr. Mom to on. you, doll. Um, but the notion that the Kuat Malat want to take uh, sole control of the investigation, persecution, and sentencing um president tarina wouldn't mind she defers to the co-op a lot um and relic saying well hey what if we do a joint mission um the scene's not even over i mean this kind of sit talk all in the group together portion is about to wrap up but again hearing your summary and looking at my notes and saying oh I have to mention this I have to mention that and so forth this feels very far from 
you know, other scenes where, it, you know, in other in other types of stories, we'd be looking at the map and saying, so what we need to do is get blue to yellow where we drop off the red. Like, there's a whole lot going on here, and it 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 just feels super, super effortless, um, even as we are reminded that Navarre is looking forward to rejoining the Federation's flag, so we all are playing nice. And, and Pete, take us to Mom and Burnham having a hug goodbye. Uh, the discussion here between them, um, obviously that this can't be excused, this murder that's happened, but the idea of Javini's reasons, uh, being contextualized is an important one throughout the course of the episode and that they want to bring her in alive. Um, so that's really important when you consider the diplomacy between these two governments and how this joint mission could be affected by that. Um, will uh, Michael's relationship with her mother make this complicated? No, that doesn't seem to be the case because uh, the president really wants to count on captain burnham here as we go to the title card we have the uh the title sequence as usual the episode written by terry hughes burton and directed by christopher j Byrne. we come out of it uh in the mess hall with seru finishing his meal and tilly just sitting down to start hers uh, she is upset with her mac and cheese uh, she's trying to enjoy cheese and she explains it all giggling and such uh she's trying to step outside her comfort zone part of the uh off-screen but ongoing discussion with uh dr colber as the ship's counselor uh she's trying things like cheese as mentioned pillow on the other side of the bed taking the long way to the bridge uh, pete i will just note tangentially i don't know that uh changing your sleeping habits is necessarily the kind of mix things up you know sleep should be that restorative place and whatnot but but i digress uh, Saru is off to go have a, a video call with Kaminar. They're going to be retrofitting their spaceport as they rejoin the, the stellar community. Uh, oh, and Tilly can water his plants. Just don't touch the kelp plant and don't ask why. Pete, <laughs> this, a, this a Chekhov's gun that gets referenced towards the end of the episode. But uh, if there's a larger kelp plant touching uh, reveal, it won't be happening in this episode. The idea of something being amiss with Tilly has stretched throughout the season thus far. We deal with it the most in this episode. And, you know, whether it is a question of her comfort zone being uncomfortable or too comfortable, still not quite clear on what it is. Uh, that's because they're trying to get to the bottom of it here. Uh, to engineering, where Stamets is still working the problem of the anomaly and Book is doing everything he can to try to stay near the action. He's on a tachyon treasure hunt when Burnham stops by and Stamets walks Burnham through his new theory that the gravitational anomaly is a primordial wormhole that it meets four of the five factors that has uh, gravitational distortions that uh, 
the shape of the gravity well uh, is checked off there, that it has the ability to change direction, and that it contains a massive amount of accreted dark matter. He's given it a nickname, the DMA, the Dark Matter Anomaly, uh, except the one thing missing to completely label it as uh, a primordial wormhole would be tachyons. They are always present at the birth of a wormhole. Um, until they know what it is, Stamets says, they cannot predict its behavior. And the Navarre Science Institute would be a great help. Stamets is going to send the raw data, but Book wants to go with him. And I thought it interesting and, you know, in, in the spirit of full disclosure that Stamets, who's redeveloping his relationship with Book, thinks that uh, the Navarre Science Institute would not get uh, a full understanding without a clinical forensic discussion of his book's loss. Though we still have the the third major storyline of the episode uh, yet to be, though about to be, introduced here, what's interesting about this scene is that it's indicative of how efficient this episode is. One that kind of is consciously, I think, taking a step back from uh, galactic threat ongoing story. Yes, there's elements of it that inform this episode, but very clearly the intention is to do something a bit more self-contained and equal part A story, B story, and C story. Uh, so not only is this scene setting up A, the primary uh, motivation of Stamets and Book in regards to the DMA and the, uh, the, the larger overall story, uh, and not only is it giving excuse for the two of them to continue to work together, we also get the box checked where uh, earlier in the scene, Burnham asks to, borrows, uh, to, to borrow Book's ship so among other things, that's also a smart use of the assets that you already have. You know, we are we are without any sense of uh, of cheapness. We are able to be recycling the Federation headquarters set as Federation headquarters. We are using the Starfleet ship design for Discovery for the USS Credence, and you know we could be working on Delta Flyer version twenty five, or instead, hey, let's let's take Book's ship, which does not feel inauthentic in any in any degree uh it's there it's you know it's the super shuttle it's this it's this mm -hmm. you know it's serving the place of the runabout the shuttle and so forth that other the delta flyer that other series have had so and again i'm not even pete i'm not falling back on my you know old reliable for this season how is covid impacting things it's just again an incredibly efficient episode using the standing sets that you have and using story elements say, the, the the set for books ship itself being so novel and so integral to you know this 32nd century understanding you know the the wood and the glass and the unique controls like to make it the Uber shuttle, I think makes a lot of sense. And whether he needs to take it in an episode or whether Burnham needs to borrow it in an episode or it's his treehouse where a conversation takes place, it, it serves a variety of functions. 
story moves to uh, what I am terming the medical lab. I, it also might be a cybernetics lab. I think we could, for my purposes anyway, I'll be calling it the medical lab. Uh, Gray's robotic body is being put together. Uh, he's eager to be visible again. And Adira can't wait for the crew to meet him. Culber is there and Guardian Z holophones in. Culber has arranged everything that Z needs. He kind of, in an interesting story turn, uh, again, I'll just say efficiency, I suppose, Culber kind of motions towards the other table where there are things unseen. Uh, I, I do wonder if the transference of Gray, was that something that was filmed and then cut? Um, because the story that we get, it's kind of like, we're going to do a thing. Oh, let's go to other story things. We're back and the Gray thing has happened. Um, again, not a complaint. This is very clearly, you know, each story gets an equal third uh, uh, within it. But um, Gray, though unseen by the others, is greeted by Guardian Z. Uh, Gray is fanboying. He loves the Guardians. He hoped to be one uh, himself. Uh, with that, we're going to, uh, to rock and roll. But, but Guardian Z, Pete, he knows this is an hour-long uh, largely self-contained episode of television. This transference might not work until late into the episode, Z says, at least in other words. Um, so so buckle in for dramatic tension for the next 40 minutes or so. With these unpredictable dangers and no guarantees here, uh, Gray is accepting the possibility that he'll be lost, um, but that they have to try this because he feels lost without it and he consents to begin in the corridors saru and burnham are having a walk and talk talking about how burnham's mission is rather straightforward if not for the politics but who can join the team to round things out uh saru suggests tilly burnham is surprised that was not on her radar uh saru notes that after all tilly is naturally diplomatic and, um, of course, Pete, the mission is only, you know, to both catch a killer and continue to let the Federation mend fences with both the Vulcan and the Romulan people. So why not throw it Tilly's way while she's going on a journey of self-discovery? Um, well, that idea of her stretching outside of her comfort zone and being able to do this, and then obviously the way the mission unfolds, it it makes sense in retrospect. I think initially we're like, uh, does she really need to be on this? Uh, but of course it, it all works out. And on Book's ship here as they're underway, she is babbling to uh, Gabrielle Burnham's helper nun. Uh, she's enthusiastic and then she's worried that she's you know, going to upset the nun by being enthusiastic about going to arrest their, uh, their sister. Uh, but the nun blows that off that she understands. And, uh, Tilly really digs this absolute candor. Yes. It was a nice way to connect, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of, you know, Tilly's kind of, um, Tilly, who sometimes her mouth can overflow with, and then the Coat Malat, particularly if you're a Coat Malat, you know, uh, 
<laughs> member number two who might not be named in the script and you get one line and most of the time you're there to do stunts and, and look tough and whatnot. Um, but to connect to connect both of them kind of on the back end in terms of they're just being very, very honest. And that is the, the absolute candor and how that can can um, be displayed is, you know, there's different ways in terms of whether it's restraint or, or talking or whatever it might be. But uh, but both can learn from each other and both are similarly minded and things like that. It's a, it, it is a nice little Star Trek moment here. Uh, speaking of conversations, Mom and Burnham have a have a hushed one with uh, Mom um, reiterating uh, the story that Burnham knows. The co-op lot saved her, which, again, is also kind of an, an efficient reminder. I don't think people necessarily forgot that, but is it possible that the audience member can be like, right, it's her mom who's what now? Well, we get the reminder here, but twist, it was not just anyone from the co-op lot who uh, brought Gabrielle Burnham back to life. It was Javini herself who did that, who who went after mom who was in such poor health that it was a uh, it, it was a lost cause until all of a sudden it wasn't. Um, I give credit to the story here. It's not that we necessarily were like, oh, the secret history of Gabrielle Burnham. I've been been wondering about this for so long, but it was like to get more specificity and say it's this person who we're interacting now with this story. Uh, again, very efficient, very logical, very sensible way to have things unfold. So owing Javini everything here, it reinforces Gabrielle Burnham as the right choice to be the one to track her down. She's personally invested in this. They've approached the destination, but mom says, hey, you're going to leave your phasers on board because that's not the Kowat Malat way. Uh, Burnham points out she and Tilly, of course, are not Kowat Malat, and they were going to set their phasers to stun, so it's cool, right? But no, says the elder Burnham. They'd never get through to Javini that way. They're not going to be unarmed, though. They get swords definitely outside of Tilly's comfort zone. And Pete, we have the delightful little moment where silly Tilly drops the sword because she moisturized her hands this morning. Yes, we're back to silly Tilly. None of that almost number one stuff from last season. Silly Tilly has returned. Uh, back from the act break here, uh, Tilly says there are no signs of life on the surface, but under, perhaps. Uh, why this rock, though? Does Javini have any ties to any person or place nearby? None that she has shared with her sisters. Um, there is a cavity beneath the surface where Tilly is reading ever so faintly, the dilithium tracker. And just like aboard the Credence, there's an intruder alert where they get double teamed here by the um, the mercenaries. There's a sword fight. Uh, Gabrielle Burnham kills the two mercenaries. And then Javini beams in to see that the uh, the other Kawat Malat sister has been murdered. She did not want to spill blood. Uh, tells them choose to live. If they come after her, their lives will be forfeit. Uh, Tilly says, we're going to ignore that warning. Right, Captain? Mm-hmm. 
in the medical lab. It's after the procedure. Again, not being critical, just wondering, was the procedure itself cut for time? Was it cut from the script? Um, I, I will say, Pete, this is a 55-minute episode when you include uh, the... Was there a pre- yes when you include the previously mm-hmm. on the credits the opening credits closing credits perfectly fine runtime um, if if at some point in the production of this or prior to shooting they said yeah we're looking at a forty nine page script here or how about this way we're looking at a fifty eight page script here if we do the you know beep beep all right get more of this oh no it's a bleeder quarterize that if we just cut the whole uh, medical thing we could bring this on you know to like you know, 52 minutes, mwah, chef's kiss, perfect. So um, uh, Guardian G does say that the unjoining uh, has been completed uh, and therefore the Trill Slug, the Trill Symbiont, is back in the, or rather not back, but is newly in the Grey robo body, but Grey has yet to warm up. There's no sign of brain activity and so forth. Uh, these things take time, could be a little bit, could be a lot. Uh Adira and I Hulk. didn't get that the um, symbiont had actually gone into the synth body. I and that's not explicitly stated to us. The joining and unjoining to me merely meant the idea of consciousness. Adira is still carrying the tall symbiont. Is uh, is that not the case? I. On second view, and I don't think it's this scene, perhaps it's a later scene, uh, Adira, I believe, makes reference to, uh, it's probably when Grey returns, I, uh, Adira makes reference to uh, something like, um, I wasn't sure with Tall now gone, or something like that. I would agree, Pete, there is not the you know, requisite DS9 close-up of the puppet going, arr, 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 as it, as it you know, get, gets taken out and whatnot. Um uh, let me put it this way. If next week, all of a sudden, explosion, shrapnel. Oh no, Adira has shrapnel to the gut. And now all of a sudden, it's not Adira anymore. It's this tall, it's that tall, and she's flipping through memories and whatnot. I think the story would allow that. However, my understanding of how Trill work is that she has taken... I don't know. My takeaway from this episode is to greatly infer and confidently infer but not know for sure that the that the slug has been removed from Adira and put into this otherwise empty and consciousness uh or, 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 consciousnessless uh there's a lot of suffixes a, a a body without a consciousness um i i think it's the slug that makes gray be gray although the whole issue is rather gray to me i maintain the uh the worm is in adira um and they merely transferred the consciousness the the personality into the synth we've never seen and that's where i think i guess more evidence is needed that we would say okay you know a a synth dealing with this for the first time there's going to be certain challenges it it seemed mere, merely a uh, software issue rather than a hardware issue. I will add that, um, and again, maybe that maybe this is loving criticism, or maybe this is well, you know, because COVID. 
Um, Adira and Culber are able to leave Gray's body to go for a walk. After all, says Culber, motioning off screen, Dr. Pollard is here. Uh, I went back and checked. I did not see Dr. Pollard sitting in the no. corner. Um, no. Again, I think with a lot of this stuff, you can go, okay, can we can we cut them some slack for when they were filming, um, let alone even if this was perfect circumstances. Oh, we didn't have the actress on the day or, or the footage was all kablooey. Okay, just have him motion and by, by implication, she is there. But uh, I just want to point that out, Pete. We have Dr. Pollard in the episode, just not in our eyes. Uh, we head back to the planet where uh, inside, was this a lost cause or a lost civilization? The pods there appear centuries old. There had been discussion, was Javini using it as some sort of safe house? But there seems evidence of grave robbers. Javini's cloak is draped over a member of an alien species that uh, Burnham has never seen. And the database cannot identify. But uh, Gabrielle Burnham says that any oath that a Kuat would swear would end with the the demise of that being. Um, so not quite sure what the arrangement is there. Um, and the discussion between uh, mother and daughter, Tilly interjects about her mother who did not like children, who did not like uh, children touching her, who did not like children needing things from her but if she was there now she'd give her the biggest hug it's a it's a very endearing tilly moment i think there's a pessimistic part of me that wants to say and they came up with some lines to keep tilly in the scene but i think that i mean all these lines are created in order to keep people connected to the story and connected to the scene and so forth and of course in the writing process you're going to say oh tilly hasn't spoken for three pages we'd better do something about that um i think that this is a very earned and tilly moment and pete let's not forget she's there for her natural sense of diplomacy and the fact that you know not only is there mother-daughter friction at the moment but also the representative of the united federation of planets is not agreeing with the representative uh, of the Navarre subset Kuat Malat, Tilly's there to say, can we just get down to people being people and and communicate in a in a familial level and so forth? But wait, Matt, what's that rumble? Pete, that's no moon. It's a space station ship thing. Uh, engines are starting with uh, the di the dilithium having been inserted, the stolen dilithium. Um, Look, it, the thing is all the way up there. Pete, thank goodness Burnham figures out the cool turbo lift because it's not like anybody ever has personal transporters where you can just be like, take me up there, away, boop. Um, but the, the turbo lift is cool. It also allows for a very, very wide shot of the mausoleum desiccated pod crypt thing, uh, which is we view from the uh, the center of the space towards the turbo lift later on in the episode we're going to view from the turbo lift area out towards the center of it and all the crypts turn green and whatnot so 
again, super efficient. I know why the turbo lift is there. One reason is to give us a sense of the space for later on when we go, and the day is saved, and we're going to meet none of these people, but the day is saved. Look, it turns to green. Hooray. Very total recall there, of course, referring to the original and not the sequel. Get your reboot. butt to Mars, Pete. Get your Whatever. butt to Mars. Get our butt to Navarre, Matt. <laughs> where uh, on these really interesting floating platforms, the uh, Navarre Science Institute is listening to Stamets brief them that any planet within 12 AU of the ergosphere of the DMA, uh, as Quajon was, would sustain gravitational shearing. Um, and then... The uh, Navarre uh, Science Institute members decide to take a nap. Well, now hang on, Pete. It's not a nap as much as it is a meditative uh, trance in order to to help them concentrate. Uh, great line here as they're falling into it. I believe it's President Tarina who explains the, the meditation to Stamets. He says, fine, I'll wait over there in my own sharp state. Um, then, Pete, we have one of the most uh subtly written parts of the episode president Tarina sees book off to the side you know there he is staring off into space despondent and so forth she offers him a warm a warm red spice uh to to help uh address his sadness she notes that he also looks guilty uh, Tarina here is sympathetic and heartfelt as much as an actor can be playing a vulcan we get the the great repetition, which, as I've said before, it's the notion of Vulcans and emotion, um, the, the way it's articulated here, it, it has always been that case all the way back to Spock, but it really was in Pete, I'll say it, J.J. Uh, Trek, where it was kind of reframed. The exact same details were reframed as we have these emotions, they're just suppressed. So when we feel great emotions and listen to them, it must be. And an even greater experience than those who who deal with emotions all the time. Um, that general notion is repeated here, uh, and she's you know, he wishes that he could be you know have less emotion. She says that she can't teach him such things, and in maybe the best episode, uh, the best line of the episode, book notes: "A drowning man needs only one breath." Just this idea that if she can teach him anything, one thing about dealing with his emotions and getting out of this this understandable uh wave of sadness that it will be a help you know as a vulcan that she can tell from his body language that he's experiencing this survivor's guilt that he needs freedom from um and is just so caught up in the idea that he missed something that he could have saved his family really the emotional backbone of this episode uh, back to inside the moon ship um, where Tilly is looking at the rather bizarre reaction system. She finds the tracker in the dilithium supply and uh, she powers it down. But Javini has uh, or will find out um, Burnham find some carvings that show the moon uh, left its world because of a supernova. 
their own planet became unlivable, that it's not a mausoleum, that those are cryotubes cryo below, and that Juvini was protecting them from grave robbers. And now they need Tilly to go even further outside her comfort zone and become bait. Back to Adira and Culver. The two are at the ship's bar playing darts. Uh, also an opportunity for Adira to be sharing their frustration. Gray is gone, perhaps for good. Adira feels alone. Culber notes that they are not alone. Culber and, by extension, the crew are here for them. Uh, Saru is brought in on the conversation, I believe, when Culber steps aside to sit with Saru. Saru notes that one cannot ride two veil beasts with one set of buttocks, uh, which is a great kind of, you know, <laughs> it lacks the normal smoothness of Saru wisdom, and that's clearly <laughs> intentional. But despite the fact that it's got kind of chunky language, it's, you know, the meaning is very, very clear here. Uh, and also the idea that Culver is doing an admirable job managing multiple uh, roles, both as ship's doctor and ship's counselor. Uh, with that, Adira goes back to the medical lab to sit with the essentially comatose Gray, uh, or maybe not comatose in the science medical sense of the episode, but story comatose, holding Gray's hand, speaking to him, being there for him. Following through on the message of the previous scene in the in the new bar set, the idea of being a light in the darkness to guide him. Back underground, uh, Tilly continues to wait as bait, and Javini shows, tells her to move away from the engine. Tilly chooses to live 100%, and then the Burnhams beam back in. We get a quick duel between Kawat Malat sisters uh, with the sword winding up held at Gabrielle's neck. Uh, she wants Tilly to get the warp drive back online. Um, and Burnham notes that she knows Javini does not want to kill. Uh, they think they can offer up a solution here. And uh, Gabrielle uh, explains that Michael is her daughter here, that she can be trusted. These were Abronians, the last of their kind. Their biomatter contains high concentrations of latinum, and it was Taglinin, the one they found with the cloak, uh, who had made a connection, called out really uh, to uh, Javini, that she was on her way through that star system. Uh, and then we see the flashback here uh, the Abronians had been under attack and uh, Javini had arrived and fought off the attackers just as Taglinin died. So Javini needed to protect the rest of them, which kind of doesn't fit what they've established as the Kuat Malat Kalan Kai of taking on the lost cause because they already said it would end with the death of the one you made the promise to. Um, first and foremost, I think that this whole scene is showing how there's a whole lot of story going on in both this storyline and the episode as a whole. 
and once again they're kind of able to get away with a lot of talky talk and not a whole lot of showing uh for example we could have in an episode such as this that is very talky we could have just had Javini say uh i came and i protected them and junk like that it does call for some kind of visual at a certain point to show it in uh in the alien's eye we don't see who Javini is fighting we don't see you know what species were they you don't need to do a whole big makeup thing big set and so forth you're able to see it you're able to move out of just pure conversation um get the artistic presentation there in the eye the eye closing the cloak over it the the pathos all of that again in a very efficient storytelling way i will grant you pete so has she, it's like has she made the promise to the individual that's probably most literally the case can one infer particularly i know she's more romulan than vulcan but in a very kind of frustrating vulcan way can we infer that if if she wants to say that it was actually made to the people as a whole that you know she has um i know this though part of what this scene highlights is that if they can fix the ship and save the species then the other outcome has occurred they have saved the species therefore the lost cause uh has been found or has been has been happily resolved so that too would free javini again this is a story that has i think it's easy enough to sit and watch it and go okay three different stories of people dealing with stuff and there's some action interludes and all of that um but there's a very very complex series of rules and if then statements and things of that sort to make each one of those storylines be propelled this one in particular the carvings again referenced here that they had come to this planet to be their new home uh the one that the moon is orbiting um and when they wake uh Javini was going to make sure that they were able to claim it um the dilithium was necessary in case that gravitational anomaly you know the one everybody's aware of now uh you know wouldn't be able to move toward them and uh Jiminy would be able to safely move the moon away from it uh so now at last we understand what the dilithium is for um why didn't Jiminy ask for it because Starfleet wouldn't give it to individuals. And then Burnham surmises, oh, you would have had to tell about the Abronians, therefore they wouldn't be a secret anymore. There we go. So it would appear, and we're told, that killing a Starfleet officer, though it was a bad decision, was not in vain. Um, but Burnham wonders if these cryotubes haven't failed and she wants to try to fix the problem and help wake the remaining abronians and Javini puts her on a story clock you have until tilly finishes repairing her warp drive and not a moment more back to navarre we go the scientists uh wake slash come out of their own uh trance uh to say that there's in fact no evidence of uh, the fifth indicator of a newly forming wormhole. <laughs> I love that. I love that the Vulcans don't say anything like, uh, "Commander Stamets, you were right. 
we checked your math. You were correct. It's just, you want us to check the evidence? There's no evidence. Um, Tarina does wonder if perhaps there's evidence to be uh, gotten another way. Booker might remember seeing the blue light of a Cherenkov radiation burst. That would be proof of tachyons. A mind meld would uncover it, but of course he would have to relive the death of his planet. Um, Stamets, I think, very, uh, very ably here says, no, you can't make him do that and so forth. But uh, Booker is ready for the challenge, ready to contribute however he, however he might. Uh, we get the mind meld. Nice little effect here of things kind of, uh, you know, we, we melt from the exterior view of them into the, the interior mm-hmm. view of his mind. Very quickly, she's gotten what she needs in terms of the planet exploding. Uh, we don't see a blue light. That will be confirmed uh, by her not seeing it either in a bit. Uh, but Booker asks them to be under a bit more replaying how uh, Leto turned, how he how he said the name of Uncle Booker, and uh, Pete, with that, the mind meld ends, and Tarina... His, his forehead lit up. And yes. we've seen that with the Quajon before, and, you know, though uh, Book has poured over this memory, trying to figure out were there signs that he should have picked up on uh, of the science of what he could save his family from. It was the emotional stuff, the stuff he's best attuned for that he's missed that his nephew did uh, know that he loved him. Um, So that we come back for that, uh, you know, mind meld. It was not for nothing. He was not made to relive this just for the pain there was gain and speaking of the pain uh president tarina notes and and again this this uh, threading of a needle way that a performer must emote a vulcan but then also not emote a vulcan um tarina saying having now lived through the death of his planet and lived through uh to whatever degree one does the mind meld uh, the loss of uh, of uh, of Leto, she says her condolences are inadequate, and it's just every every emotion that a Vulcan can't quite cop to is in those three words. You know, and again, three little words. Yeah, ask the actor to take the story on their back for that line, and it's just an incredibly efficient way to get all of that across: the alienness, the shared, uh, I'll say, story humanity, the shared you know experience of life, and all of that. Um, she does also mention, uh, as we suspected, there was no evidence of radiation. So this is definitely not a wormhole. Not a primordial wormhole here. Uh, meanwhile, back on the moon ship, Burnham has found the problem. She's able to turn on the cryotubes. They'll be awake in a few minutes here. Gabrielle Burnham tells Javini that this path is at an end. The next awaits, which will be explained to us in a couple scenes here. Javini puts her sword down. She apologizes. Tilly has fixed the engine, so if the anomaly does come that way, the Abronians can escape. Uh, Gabrielle uh, says here that she's going to take Javini into custody. They put the cuffs on her. Um, 
it's a nice moment where back on books ship both the captor and the captive pray over the fallen uh, Pilot Malat sister. Um, and Burnham tells Tilly that uh, something she should check out over here. And we get the shot of the Abronians leaving the, um, the, the moon ship and heading down to the planet below. Uh, and the, that path uh, was the one they were meant to be on. Uh, we, Burnham, Tilly, Mom, even Javini, gave them that. And a nice moment with uh, arms around Captain and Lieutenant. Yes, and I think a visually better moment um, by way of you know the glowing ships heading to the new planet. It, it, it's visually better and it's more emotionally rewarding for we, the audience, than, you know, President Alien Face saying, thank you for all your help, which I think is something that many, uh, many an older Star Trek would have just cut to leader bleep blop you know it's it's just it's a really great presentation pete you had mentioned it's the path that they were meant to be on later tilly notes to mom that for the co-op lot these paths really are a thing mom notes that some paths are easy to see an end point like when you're at the end of a co-op lot sword uh other paths more difficult to note their nature their end point and so forth so how about I think essentially what mom is saying, though not not I'm not quoting the dialogue here. How about looking in the mirror and living your life with absolute candor, or at least more of it? We also have mom and Burnham reconnecting. Uh, they note that the saving of these people does not undo the the death of the Starfleet commander, but let's kind of contextualize the loss versus gain uh, at Starfleet headquarters. Burnham notes just that interesting shot as. Vance looks powerless. We we have the whole, the whole everybody at HQ assembled. You know, Burnham, Mom, uh, I suppose Tarina's. I know Tarina's there, but Coapalot and and so on and so forth. And it's Vance who steps closer to the camera, looks away from them, and kind of looks looks powerless. I know we're about to get the lovely music metaphor, orchestra metaphor, in a little bit, but again. They could have skipped that and just been like, you get your coverage, you get your coverage. I don't know if somebody can edit this junk together. Instead, we have the discussion going on, and it's a Vance moment. Maybe planting seeds? Stay tuned for theories. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but the big takeaway is that uh, Prisoner Javini will be handed over to the Qualat Malat for repercussions, of which we do not know. Um, and, and indeed, Pete Burnham asks uh, Vance and Rillick, uh, will Javini, Javini be held accountable? Yeah, I think it's a Star Trek solution. The idea of trust in another government, that they're going to do the right thing, regardless of their particular decision, that there there will be accountability. Um, and Vance says that that's up to Navarre now, that you know, that's their duty. Um, President uh, Rillick says that Burnham has executed this mission admirably, but Burnham is still fixated on Patrick Fickett, you know, who had a partner, Harile, uh, and two kids that in maybe the most, you know, presidential 
politicking way ever, of course, Rillick knows the names of Kren and Niall. Um, and they deserve justice. But, you know, this family and their fallen member weighed against, I think it's undersold of the millions that would benefit if Navarre would come back to the Federation, really billions there. Um, and that, you know, justice will be served in time. Um, left alone, Vance and Burnham talk, and we do get the, the music metaphor, uh, but his admission that he would have preferred a different outcome. Obviously, they've lost a member of their ranks. Starfleet has. They didn't get the pound of flesh, but, you know, working as part of a larger organization, again, the, the metaphor uh, of an orchestra, that the president is the conductor, that they just need to trust that she knows the symphony. And that context is a great reminder. Pete, I don't think you nor I are concerned when Captain Michael Burnham is at the center of galactic events and the most important person to save the day and so forth. That said, uh, I think it's a natural story consequence to have a moment like this and to say, hold on, Admiral Kirk, or we got to do something. Otherwise you're the best guy ever. Now we're going to bump you back to captain. Um, and similarly here to just say, Hey, thanks for saving the universe several times over. Don't forget, you're just a captain in Starfleet. There are other things. Vance the drums, and it's not up to us to worry about whether woodwinds and strings are fighting and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, ultimately, the the notion here, we must trust that Rillick is making the right decisions. Or will we? That's something to discuss later. The story moves to Saru's quarters, where he is watering the plants. Uh, Tilly stops by. He hopes that her being involved has helped her. And Pete, she is such a silly Tilly again when she pretends to touch the no-no plant. It's just so, so funny. We have silly Tilly back and it's so, so funny. <laughs> uh, I I get it with the, the Tilly mannerisms. It's really part of her personality. Okay, what's going to happen if I touch the swamp kelp bloom? Um... And to mess around with Saru, who's far more serious and, and solemn. Uh, so for me, it works. We go back to um, sickbay where uh, patient gray uh, brainwave activity uh, is nil. And then it flicks on. Uh, Adira is asleep at his side, uh, holding his hand and gray's eyes open um, they talk. He says he's definitely him. Uh, Colbert comes in and Guardian Z, we're told, is on the way. Colbert advises Gray to take it slow. And even though Gray had planned all these words, um, it just doesn't come close to what he's feeling. Um, and when Guardian Z arrives, at least it's the hollow version of him. Uh, he's told he's going to get a hug as soon as Gray sees him in per person. And for me, the, the line of the episode here, Adira asks Gray what it's like. And he says that he is whole 
and home. And that's thanks to Adira. Indeed, Pete. Uh, Gray has found his way, as Adira called him, across the void. And reflecting on his own void is Book, who's staring at the hollow ceiling of his home world. Uh, he notes that his grief will fade, but he needs to keep himself open to hang on to the memories. Uh, it's also noted, as, as Burnham joins him, that he's wearing his amulet again the first time in years. It felt right to wear it now. He's at peace right now, and sometimes uh, peaceful moments are all that we get. Pete, with that incoming threat analysis, gee, Wilkers, we must have just lowered our shields because who's here? It's Javini. <laughs> I really like the Kuat Malat. You know, we haven't had a ton of them. Originated on uh, Picard in the first season and of course really in reverse the idea that Elnor is a male member of a, a group an organization of warrior nuns um so to see it through that reverse lens and I think the decision when she got to the future to make Gabrielle Burnham one of them was really neat because we can carry over that group, obviously, with 900 plus years of uh, development and history. And, um, you know, the, the honor, the practices, the absolute candor, the, you know, championing of lost causes. And I think they, they play really well. And to use one here as a villain, I was a little worried in seeing the preview for this week that it was going to be kind of a, you know, right by numbers whodunit. And I really appreciated in a story with as many uh, lines, ABC, that are in it, that it really unfolded in an interesting way. You see, Pete, if you hadn't watched the preview, then you wouldn't have been worried about the quality of the episode. Oh, stop. Uh, another threat this episode, albeit somewhat in the background, is the DMA, the Dark Matter Anomaly. Um, and I guess this is as good a time as any to reiterate that I'm impressed that after two episodes of we're all working on this thing, that we have an episode where the, the clear season threat is present but it's not really a driver for it certainly is not a driver for the gray story it's nominally a theoretical driver or a past driver of the Javini story in terms of to protect this moon from this thing that might come this way because we don't know that it won't you know it, again it's kind of this like it's not chicken or the egg it's the opposite it's like a series of steps prior gets us to Javini and then Yes, Stamets and Book are uh, at uh, Navarre to talk about the threat and the analysis, but emotionally that story is more about the two of them working together, Stamets looking to protect Book, and Book finding some sort of emotional resolution from the least emotional people that there are. With the DMA having been inspired, at least initially, by the pandemic, and the idea that if we're not going to deal directly with that each week 
that there are going to be these stories that ripple out of it. Okay, so here are uh, people who are affected by it, and here's what's going on with them. And we have Discovery go off on a tangential uh, mission. So I think as a as an overarching threat, particularly, I mean, five light years across, unpredictable in nature, still not gotten their arms fully around it, that it it looms so large in the background and can still affect the story. As we set our long-range sensors to scan for some theories, Pete, I'm going to start small and work bigger from there. Uh, what we see of the interior of the USS Credence, uh, it has on the wall what I'm assuming a la Disco is the nickname USSC-CH, no spaces. Uh, what's up with that? Just an abbreviation and the set dressing way to let you know you're on a different ship. Uh, Matt, my headcanon is that the USS Credence is a Clearwater uh, class vessel. Uh, that's why if it was USS CCR, it would have been like, oh, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> but um... You don't have two C's uh, ahead of the R in it so it wouldn't have made sense uh, pete maybe maybe one day the set decorator person will do a little video or something we'll get a little <laughs> bit more uh, yeah we'll get an answer to the biggest question coming out of this episode pete a little more seriously here um we're kind of told periodically throughout the episode that they the starfleet people who are a proxy for we the audience but that starfleet should trust the president and essentially stop questioning her leadership so much um are we slowly cooking on a i don't know are we slowly cooking something with president Rillick where don't trust in the president how much of that is the writing room talking in 2019 and 2020 how much of that is a message they want to carry into 2021 and so forth. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm a bit perplexed by the notion that we are maybe working on that storyline here and now. Well, I mean, you don't exactly need to be a deep student of history to get the feel that they might be looking at. And all right, so the whole orchestra symphony metaphor at the end how present Rillick has been this season. Not a regular cast member, but recurring. So can we expect that she'll be in every episode? No. But, you know, much like this DMA, um, you know, a lot of emphasis on. It's all hands on deck. It's this big, large, looming threat. Of course, you're going to have senior leadership represented. Um but we look at the way that recent crises have gone and uh, decisions made and the idea of absolute trust, the idea of 
capability, the idea of, you know, smarts. I mean, so long, Matt, as we don't get a scene where the president says to members of the Navarre uh, Science Council, Science Institute, that, um, you know, you could inject some bleach into the DMA or possibly some light. Uh, Pete, let's take things a bit more warm and fuzzy here. Um, and th- I, I'm not pro- I'm not asking the beginning of this theory as a joke. I really, really mean it. Uh, Gray promises a hug for Guardian uh, Z, are, which is just an adorable moment. A great to see Guardian Z return the whole nine yards. Are we setting up a return to the Trill planet on another adventure in the near future? So if nothing else, we can get that hug. I mean, I hope so. The biggest question beyond, of course, where's the symbiote? Uh, Is it with Adira? Is it uh, in the gray synth body here? So they refer to Guardian Z arriving and he's a hollow and later he comes back. That's not an arrival. That's a phone call. Um... I would agree that the wording is a little weird and the fact that it's slightly perplexing, like you don't want your audience confused unless you're saying like, who is the real stealer of the stuff? It's a mystery, you know? Um, So I'm wondering, is there some sort of production reason why they would have said that? Well, if the actor wasn't there on the day, you'd be like, Oh, it's star Trek. He's going to hollow in. Um, Although I think he was there on the day because all, they just have the dude stand there and they go shimmer, shimmer, hologram. Uh, so I will admit to you that's a little, that's slightly confusing, although not to the detriment detriment of the episode. Similarly, we had discussed that maybe it's underplayed or underplayed towards the point of my being incorrect, but that perhaps the Tal symbiote has been taken from Adira. So I guess... A, that's one to keep an eye on, and B, I wonder if a story result of that is, well, how about this? We have not really had Adira save the day because, oh, let me think back to the Tals. Oh, yes, I can provide the music answer, the this answer, the that answer, but I will note that that is now gone, and I think that that could be an interesting, if indeed the symbiote is gone from Adira, I think it would be interesting to now have Adira have lost on some level all of the, or some of the experiences and knowledge that was with them. I hope not. And I think being in the body of a human who has now joined Starfleet as an ensign was part of that uh, earth defense force has these experiences, but can reach for, I mean, that's the real metaphor that lasts throughout this episode is the idea of connection. Um, And that that's a way that crowns them with experience. I, I, I want the symbiote to be in Adira. I think gray having benefited from the symbiote, but now able to start his journey in the synthetic body 
and, you know, physically commune now with others, which is going to be another storyline going forward, getting to meet people and make other friends. And, you know, you even heard a, a note of, uh, you know, not jealousy, but just slight concern, like, oh, everybody's going to get to meet you. They're going to love you. Not as much as I do, though. Um, not that they're setting up trouble between the lovers, but just, all right, no one else can see and hear him. Um, and it frees them too of what in a couple episodes, you know, now is, it's not tiresome, but Adira talks for, um, their self and then for gray. And now they don't have to do that anymore. Now gray can have his own interactions with other characters and develop that dynamic. The last one from me. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to throw rocks here. Uh, as I pointed out, we've seen the return here a bit of silly Tilly. Here's my slightly serious question. Is the show resetting or backtracking a bit on the more confident version of the character that we saw last season. And again, I'm not saying that is good, that is bad, but the person who was in the running to become the first officer, you know, at the end of last season was in the running to become Michael Burnham's first officer and was wearing one kind of uniform at the very end of the season. Then they went back and changed the color in post as work for season four was underway. And now that, that more confident character, they've they've dialed that confidence back a bit. Is that the show saying, "Hey, we started to go down a path that we're not crazy about"? Time to time to make a change. Well, let's remember that uh, Mary Wiseman uh, is a comedic actress, and you're going to put her in the situation where she's most able. Um, I like this version of Tilly. I, I like everything they've done this season, the, the new take on hairstyle to have her be unsure of herself. You mentioned competent, um, as an adjective to apply toward her last season. You know, they had come so far through time. She had been without Michael um, that she had no choice but to be who she was in that time. She still had Saru. She had the other members of the crew. Um, and it's interesting that it's noted in this episode, either she's uncomfortable and, and out of the comfort zone or that the comfort zone had become too comfortable. Um, and the idea of change being the thing that moves you forward. So she's trying new things. She's learning new things. I think it's a factor too of Culber's role now as a counselor, something they're emphasizing more and more this season and the mental health component. Cause let's not, you know, let that uh, lose focus in the idea of the threat is drawn from the pandemic because certainly that's been an issue. Star Trek always keeping an eye on that connection to and commentary on the, uh, the, the modern world. 
What other theories do you have? Let's talk about Navarre, Matt, and pending reunification four. <laughs> um, would be would be a good episode title. Uh, one I would not rule out. Um, I think that that would be that would be a fan favorite kind of moment. And I think that there's been that there's been that itch ever since we were told that they had left the Federation. Um, founding I, members, right? Like, absolutely. How, how do you not have, and obviously having reincorporated, reincorporated, reincorporated with the Romulans, you know, not having a home world and making the most sense, you know, these are a, a species that had their roots together, bring them back. Um, all this time's gone past. Discovery is catching up. Starfleet is catching up to what's happened there. Um, but what's this episode serve? That it's not such an abrupt thing that Navar rejoins the Federation. I, I think, too, I mean, not really having a great sense of where this season is headed. I, I think, for example... Uh, and by contrast, season two, like, there are the seven signals. Okay, Pete, I don't know if we're going to get to the seventh signal in episode three or in episode 10 or in episode 13, but they've gone and told us that when you get to the last signal, like, either you solve the problem or that's the last piece to then solve the problem, whatever it is, that's a certain sense of peace. Here we are three episodes in, and we still don't know what the DMA is. So, again, this notion of are you saving Navarre for a mid-season thing? Is Navarre actually going to be your, your quote-unquote, you know, uh, medal-giving scene, your wedding scene, your whatever at the end of the season where we get to celebrate not just the reunification, but also all our characters wearing dress uniforms and there's going to be flowers in the air and drinks to be had. Um, it could be any of those things, which is also kind of fun, too, because they, they haven't said... You know, I mean, I mean, what does pending mean? If you said pending is six months, okay, that would put it towards the end of the season, I think. If you said pending is next week, okay, maybe that's next week, but both could be true. What about the idea that Stamets voiced, until he knows what the DMA is, he can't predict its behavior? I mean, I think that, if it's going to be Stamets and everybody else in the world of science. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, again, I think it's also kind of calling story attention to the fact that you can't predict what it is until you understand the science behind it. Um, and also I think it's, you know, Stamets voicing the frustration is saying, Oh, we're, we're, we're nowhere near, uh, you know, wrapping this up. This is a season long threat, not a, not a half season threat. Uh, so I think for me, it's all it's all indicating the same thing in the same direction. Uh, what about Kaminar rejoining the stars? That's obviously going to be part of this larger story. Yeah, and I think this is such a curious episode because we move a bunch of characters um, along a little bit. I I even was wondering, and I don't mean to keep hitting the you know kind of COVID production. Uh, issue but it is clearly an issue i was even wondering like was this episode 
did they shoot this as the third episode or did they save it for later on knowing like hey if all of a sudden we need to we need to do a partial shutdown all right well we can shoot all the we you know we can shoot all the saru stuff for this episode three uh if he's the only guy around him and the small camera crew and so forth like was this episode designed to be broken down and deployed when you needed it uh i I don't know perhaps not but i think that that's an interesting that's an interesting discussion that one might have had in pre-production for this season but I, i think more directly to your question though i'm not a huge fan of sukal as a character clearly we're getting more of him we got him uh, at the beginning of this season so to see seru return there and help shepherd the planet along makes sense makes sense for the character um it's a reminder that i guess seru is not a permanent fixture on discovery although it's like per- not permanent wink wink in that i don't think doug jones is going anywhere it's just Saru has Saru is here temporarily. Then we're going to get back to more Saru focused stuff. What happens if you touch the swamp kelp uh, while in bloom? I mean, I'm assuming some sort of like it gets you with the barbs, and all of a sudden you have what was it from Star Trek? Oh nine mush face. <laughs> slow tongue whatever it is like like there's the opportunity i I imagine this if it is some sort of setup versus like all right we're gonna have a jokey joke we're gonna set it up in the one scene and then oh you know i'm uh i'm tilly i kind of live a little silly and seru's a little you know a little buttoned up oh don't touch it again fine if that's the extent of it so be it if we're setting up you know like oh man uh when the ship gets attacked by the uh i don't know Let's go through the Rolodex here. When the uh, Andorians attack, Tilly can take them into Saru's quarters and then hide, and they'll touch the thing, and now all of a sudden they get they get all blobby or they or whatever. Maybe that, maybe that. I think I think it's more allergic than anything else. Um, what do you think about the new bar set? I suspect it might be a nice redress of the. Um, Emperor Georgiou's quarters now turned Burnham's, uh, you know, captain's quarters. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's very nice. I think it's interesting that it was, it's interesting that Next Generation had a need for, you know, identified a need pretty quickly for a bar space. Had ten forward for six of the seven seasons. Deep Space Nine makes one to be at, 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 you know, at a major part of the crossroads of the promenade. Um, G. Willikers Voyager in its complete redress of the Enterprise D, you know, of course has has the mess hall slash uh, bar area. The fact that Discovery didn't have one kind of never jumped out to me, but I think it's a Star Trek has demonstrated, let alone I don't know shows that take place entirely in a bar in Boston have demonstrated that it's a great it's a great storytelling place. And again, if you already have the set, you just need to roll on in. You know, if you have the the four walls or whatever, you're just going to roll in. You know, uh, a bottle background and an actual bar and some stools. Then it's economical, along with a really great storytelling place. I like the fireplace there. I like yeah. that Lower Decks has had a bar as well. So you know, makes it a little bit more uniform as a, a space on these ships i mean we we've learned that 
you look at the schematics, they have all these different things, but to see the the way that we'll go and, and utilize these spaces, I think, uh, you know, builds character. With that, Pete, let's open Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. We check out our Twitter poll, as we oftentimes do. So, with Discovery offering up a trio of tender tales this week, which one best spoke to you? Uh, the first choice, Book's Bittersweet Memory, got 40%. Next, Tilly's Path of Evolution, got 35%. Gray and Back Again, got 15%. And then Other, Reply Below, got 10%. Uh, and indeed, Pete, let's start to look at some of those responses right now. First one up is from JT Atkins. Is that JTA is me? Uh, nice standalone that was also critical to the arc. Well-played Star Trek Discovery. I predict Tilly throws that plant at someone by season's end. There you go, Pete. Great minds thinking alike. <laughs> uh, next, from James the Sagacious. That's at Big Killin on Twitter. Something old, mind meld. Something new, Abronians. Something borrowed. That's no moon. Something blue, Javini's cloak. Pete, wedding bells in the mind of James the Sagacious there. James also goes on to say that uh, all three stories were interesting and the acting was so good that the writing was elevated. Javini's choices reminded me of the binars. You might have said no. Next one up is Spider-Ham Lincoln. That's at TessLC139, who says, It's not my favorite episode of the season so far, but still a solid effort. I'm not a Grey fan yet, but maybe he'll grow on me. Really like what they're doing with Saru this season, and Tilly's growth is very appealing, as she's still trying to find her place 900 years later. Love the disco. Pete, I will say this with all uh, due respect to the mighty and wise um, Spider-Ham Lincoln there. This may have been my favorite episode of the season. I welcome back more self-contained, slightly more episodic. Uh, I think that long-term long storytelling can certainly work. It's been great for Star Trek. Part of what has me super excited about Strange New Worlds is that we're going to really bury ourselves in that standalone model you know, for the most part, um, I, I say, bring it on. You know, 55, 56 years now of Star Trek, I think to me, the idea of the episodic stuff outnumbering everything else. All right. Is, is that what Star Trek is? I like the, the serial storytelling. I like, you know, when Enterprise does the um, the expanse, when um, they do the Dominion War on Deep Space Nine, um, I think that there's a place for those arcs and this DMA being used as a fulcrum for all these other stories you wonder how they'd be going about it if they didn't have it to tie it together pete next from twitter uh you might recall that stingray aka trek girl 88 had shared uh, news of a family loss last week and this week stingray says thank you for your kind words on last week's podcast i miss my dad but i agree with book's take on having the memories even if painful is better than not the thing I'm loving most about this show is the way the Discovery crew have each other's backs. Personally, professionally, medically, spiritually, everyone is supported however they need. 
and the way they're navigating the ways we experience grief, it's so well done. When you look at the amount of loss that we have experienced in the face of the pandemic, um, I think the universal ideas here of addressing grief of like Saru so sagely said, everybody sits with it in their own way. Um, we know obviously that everybody grieves differently. People need more time, less time, no time at all um, to, to be able to do that. But, you know, the overwhelming numbers, that's where it's just so callous when people have attempted to belittle the loss or, oh, you're, you're labeling everything as COVID-19 as, as cause of death. Um, this has affected every individual on the planet, something we've not seen in a hundred years. And yes, Star Trek has looked at pandemics and civilization shaking um, events, crises before. Uh, but I don't really recall a situation where they've been able to take something that we've experienced in the time of Star Trek and, and be able to build it so, you know, fundamentally into the storytelling of the show. Yes, we've done the collapse of communism and we've looked at that through well what would happen if the the klingons had an environmental disaster and and needed to broker peace with the federation because they could not fight a war on on two fronts but here an unpredictable threat and and what it means to attempt to fight that to uh avoid it to figure it out and um, everything that comes with it, like I said, a hands-on-deck approach and, and brings out the finest, not just in humanity, which is who's watching it, but in the pantheon of diversity that Star Trek represents. Back to Twitter, we hear from Single Since Obama, that's at KylieG328, who says, I didn't think I wanted Gray to get a body, but boy, did I cry when he did. But Tilly's journey is intriguing. Uh, we heard from Kez Choo Choo Choo. That's at Karen Chu on Twitter. They were all so equally, and for me, unexpectedly moving. Disco gets so much flack for being emotional, but that's its strength, and they are leaning into it. I, for one, love it. Uh, because that's their thing, man, and it works. This was a beautiful episode on all respects. Uh, Pete, I will echo that as well. I had said to you, I think, off microphone when we were talking about hawkeye yesterday um the best episode of hawkeye all season was hawkeye 103 that we podcasted yesterday mm -hmm. the best episode of discovery for me in a while and that's not to have any dissatisfaction with last season but the i can't remember the last time i enjoyed the discovery episode as much as this one and i'm like did, did i get extra sunshine or something did i what is it that i'm so happy here oh maybe it's just a confluence of both of the third episodes of their respective seasons this season were really great um 
But Pete, back to Twitter here. We hear from Barton Stan. That's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1 on Twitter. Decent episode. Not great. They can't all be number one. Glad they didn't stretch out the gray story too long, but I think Tilly's issue needs more time. No bridge crew? Did we see them at all? Uh, what what the heck, Star Trek? One of them could have uh, gone with Burnham. Give these folks a darn story. And Spider-Ham Lincoln, it's at Tess LC139, says, Agreed, I need my OWO Detmer fix. So what are your thoughts there, Pete, on uh, us not having seen a whole lot of the the uh, the Canada crew lately? They, they weren't in this episode. You have to wonder again, was that a function of the protocols? Um, but we, we know they're there. We know they're pushing the buttons on the bridge. We don't have to see them to know that they're doing that. We, we want more of them because I think they're endearing to us. But I think they've they've given us more than just the the passing glances. All right, they weren't in this episode. They'll they'll be there again. Give me a short trek season where each person, <laughs> even if you're going to say, okay, each person gets five minutes. All right, it's something we're going to shoot your stuff in the morning and your stuff in the afternoon. We're going to bang through it in two and a half days or whatever. I would I would totally welcome that versus versus I don't know something else. I I'd, I'd, I'd say bring it on. And Pete, let us bring on the return of Admiral Fred from the Netherlands, whose wise voice we hear now. Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 3. First off, a question. What is the similarity between Star Trek Discovery and COVID? Well, it's contagious. And this will be the very last time I will bring up this topic, because last week's podcast I said I was happy that Soniqua Martin-Green's, or Michael's, whispering was less. Well, it was full time back here in this episode, and even her mother took it over. It's really contagious. And if people don't know what I'm talking about, have a listen. We can offer you a solution. You would say whatever you have to to get me to drop my card. No. No, no lies, I promise you. We have a few minutes while Lieutenant Tilly repairs the systems. Oh yeah, at least. I mean, I'm, I'm hurrying, but I, I really did a number on this thing, so... The species sleeping in the cocoons. They're your lost cause, aren't they? You can trust her, Javini. She's my daughter. And I really don't understand it because I have a lot of respect for Sonequa Morton-Green in acting, directing, etc. Just using this kind of tool to express emotion, uh, stressed emotion, anxiety or emotional stuff. You don't need this. Certainly she doesn't with her acting ability. Okay, this is the end of my rant and I promise you I won't talk about it anymore in the rest of the series because I'm sure it will be there again, just as last season. Actually, I really have to go back to season 1 and 2 because I didn't notice it there. What an episode with so many storylines. If I think back of it, I think it, it were perhaps too much, but actually they are not. So we have some emotional journeys, the one of Booker, the one of Tilly, actually, with going out of her comfort zone. We have the interaction of Stamets with the Navarre. We have the whole political thing. 
between the Navarre, the Quatmalat, and the Federation President and the Admiral. Then the story of Adira and Grey. But I have to say, I have to give them a compliment because they nicely wove it together. Could have been too much, but it didn't feel like it. Gersha Phillips, the costume designer of Star Trek Discovery, outdid herself again with the very shiny dark uniforms of Tilly and Michael. I think Michael will end up with a whole wardrobe at the end of this season because in the first three episodes we already saw her in four different or perhaps even five different outfits. I found the Abronian and Javini story a little weak. But also Michael explained it to Javini, you just could have asked on behalf of them. And if the situation was made clear, Starfleet would have prioritized giving the Delithium to them. But probably she was afraid of Starfleet bureaucracy, which would have taken too much time perhaps. But still, little weak. By the way, because the biomatter of the Abronians has high concentrations of latinum and that attracted these robbers, I really wonder if these robbers are Ferengi. The Adira Grey story was great, bit as expected, with a little built in a little tension of course. Would it work, wouldn't it work, and of course it worked. There was just one thing I thought and that's not nice actually, because Grey had removed the mole on his hand. And of course, he could have asked to remove his acne or acne remnants in his face as well. But yeah, that's of course in the actor and it's perhaps not very nice of me to say. But in the story, it would have been an option. Many other things to discuss, but four minutes in, I think I have to stop here. This will be all. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. P.S. Thank you very much, Matt for appointing me Grand Admiral. Uh, actually, what makes that for rank for you, if you are able to grant me a Grand Admiral? Okay, bye. Thank you, as always, Fred. Matt, of course, is President of the Federation, hence he can uh, bestow a, uh, a title like that. Uh, Pete, I thought I was just... Uh, uh, assistant to the Fed, the president of the Federation. I was passing that uh, that info on. Uh, regardless, uh, I think Fred wisely notes that there is an edge of comedy to this episode. The Tilly stuff, Stamets, somewhat at odd with the perpetually frustratingly funny Vulcans and so forth. I think it's fair. You have that undercurrent of it. Um, the whispering thing, I, I get it. Um, I, I think it's just part of her style. I mean, the clip that Fred shows there, there is a cryo chamber beneath them. Tilly's playing up the comedy by talking louder and, you know, uh, daughter and, and mother speaking in more hushed tones. So, so there it works for me, um, on the costuming, uh, I, Gersha Phillips is a magician, just the things that she comes up with. And even then that it was a perceived misstep, like, oh, the gray uniforms with the, the color, it doesn't pop enough. We need to flip them around. Um, and even the way that these new uniforms drape 
on one side, it almost looks like they're wearing the Starfleet Delta. Um, I, I think she does phenomenal, phenomenal work. I'm so looking forward to the Viola Davis uh, Braveheart in Africa story and, you know, what she will be able to conjure in that movie. Uh, Fred also postulated, I think, very, very wisely uh, that perhaps those grave robbers were Ferengi, which Pete, I guess, makes me like Giovanni even more. Um, But my question to you, Pete, is did you spot the Ferengi in this episode? I did not. Uh, If you go back and watch that bar scene, the barkeep uh, hails from planet Ferenginar. So a little, it might be a reuse of the previously discussed uh, makeup for Frankie captain who gets no lines. Um, it might be as simple as that. Just, Hey, let's get that guy, put him in the mask again. Uh, well, Pete, being that Matt is not a fan of that, it makes sense that he would notice it. <laughs> Pete. I like to think that it's a nod to our favorite Ferengi bartender. So it, it works on multiple levels. Well, speaking of the bar, Matt, and a place where people can just come up and spend some time, want to get yourself over to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek. Indeed, Pete. It's it's the old watering hole for uh, sometimes early listens, sometimes exclusives, and definitely a place where we are so appreciative that people support us, particularly this time of year with uh, some of those end-of-year pod- podcast costs coming on in uh particularly seeing as how we have just you know we have uh marvel and star trek and star wars all happening this month uh let alone uh spider-man and maybe a visit to uh to a rebooted matrix question mark uh so certainly our uh our deepest appreciation to those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek being that it is the virtual tip cup here you get to choose the value you place on the podcast so get yourself over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek today takes just a dollar to get behind that door can't contribute right now no problem can definitely help us by going to apple podcasts leave a rating on any of our 25 podcast feeds Indeed, Pete, uh, you don't need to steal from a grave uh, of uh, Albronians or Jabronians. Uh, a little Latinum goes a long way, as does Pete keeping the conversation going. How can people be in touch with you on Twitter to talk about Star Trek? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,207 followers, can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do me in touch with the podcast, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. In the weird symmetry that tells me, Pete, maybe the universe is a construct uh, for, for the podcast, I don't know. Uh, on the Pop Culture Podcast feed. Next weekend, we'll be talking Hawkeye, episode 104. And then next Sunday, we'll be talking Discovery, episode 404. I don't know what's up with that, but it sure is weird on the schedule. Uh, and of course, if you're here just for the Star Trek content, back next Sunday for that as well. For now, though, Pete, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. Well, they pay me by the letter.